Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me today for the Janice Dean podcast. Keep those comments and suggestions coming for your nominations for the Dean's List. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Janice Dean and Instagram, Janice Dean FNC. Today's conversation is a really important one about how we can help the environment. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, Janice, we hear about how political this topic has become. It's truly a hotbed, no pun intended, of accusations, like if we vote a certain way, we either care or don't care about the planet we live on. Well, I, for one, want to protect our environment that we are so blessed to be a part of. And I think everyone agrees with that, right? My next two guests are here to talk about how we as citizens can impact the world around us in small ways that can make a difference. With more than over two decades in environmental policy, Todd Myers has worked on a range of environmental issues, including climate policy, forest health, and salmon recovery. He is a former member of the executive team at the Washington State Department of Natural Resources, and he's just released a book called Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. Talia Speaker is a Wild Lab research lead at World Wildlife Fund who helps connect people to have access to tools, resources, and networks needed to rise to the challenge of conversation. I think you will find our discussion helpful and kind. So please welcome Todd and Talia to the Janice Dean Podcast. So Todd and Talia, thank you so much uh, for being here today. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Happy to talk with you, <laughs> Todd. I want to start with you. Uh, how long have you been studying the environment? So I have worked on environmental policy for more than two decades. I used to work at the Washington State Department of Natural Resources on spotted owls and old growth forests and forest health, and uh, I now sit on the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council and trying to help salmon recover in the Pacific Northwest. So. Uh, I've worked on it for a long time. I love the story about the salmon. Tell me a little bit more about that. My boys are really interested in in fishing and protecting, uh, you know, the environment that way, making sure that, you know, we're protecting fish like our salmon. Yeah. So the problems we have with recovering salmon, um, they're really complex, which is what makes them interesting. A big problem is sort of out of our control. It's things that happen in the ocean and we don't know much about that. But a lot of the problems I think are emblematic of the types of environmental challenges that we face today. People think of water quality problems and, and pollution as coming from big outfalls, right? The, the things that cause the Cuyahoga River uh, to catch on fire. But that's not really what the problems we face 
face are anymore and the problems that are facing Sam. And it's lots of little bits of things, little bits of tire rubber, little bits of brake dust and, and um, uh, oil that get into the ocean. And that's one of the things that um, causes problems for Sam because they don't do that. They don't can't deal with that very well. There's actually a, a, a tire chemical called 6PPD that we found out just recently that really affects um, coho salmon. And so the the distributed nature of pollution today is very different than the type that we faced in the 1970s. And that's actually why I wrote my book is because we can't think about big sources of pollution because fortunately we've solved a lot of them. Mm. It's the little sources of pollution that are, that are really causing problems for salmon and other things. And that's why I called my book time to think small. And that's where I think the solutions are to a lot of these problems. I love it. I want to talk about an article that I read a couple of weeks ago that really got my attention that I feel should be a bigger story, and that is the Greenpeace study stating that plastic recycling is a disaster and a myth. Tell me, can you give us more information about that? I mean, we've been doing this for 30 years. We've been separating our plastic uh, and our cardboard and our paper and our tin cans, and all of a sudden it's for naught? Well, I don't think it's entirely a myth and I don't think it's for naught, but it certainly um, isn't what people expected. People expect that if they're going to recycle plastic bottles and other things like that, that, that it will be turned into uh, new plastic or reused again. And that's not always the case. A lot of it, as the Greenpeace study indicates, ends up in landfills um, for a whole range of reasons. One of them is simply supply chain, which is that China is not taking a lot of that anymore and we haven't built up the infrastructure but there's really amazing technology that can use it and where i think it does make a difference is when you have a specific buyer rather than just sort of generally recycling and then hoping that somebody buys it if you have a buyer and there's a great one of my favorite stories in my book actually is about a group called plastic bank and plastic bank their goal is to try to keep plastic out of the ocean there's a huge amount of plastic going into the ocean people know about the garbage patch And what Plastic Bank does is that it pays people in developing countries where most of the plastic is going into the ocean. And it it pays them simply on cell phones. So people, about 93% of people in developing countries have smartphones or cell phones. So they pay them to pick up plastic. You can geolocate because you have the GPS, tell you where the plastic was picked up. And then Plastic Bank takes that plastic, recycles it, and sells it to SC Johnson. So when you go and you buy a Windex bottle, it will say made with 100% ocean-bound plastic. Mm. And I think that is a better strategy. So the the concerns about sort of general plastic recycling and will somebody buy it and is it usable or does it just end up in a landfill? Absolutely, I think that those are valid concerns. And one of the solutions to that is – to use it to have a company like SC Johnson, who knows that the quality is gonna be a little bit lower and maybe a little bit more expensive, but it's worth it to achieve a goal like reducing ocean bound plastic. And they know that people will buy it because they wanna contribute to a good cause. And we now can do that because of the ubiquity of small technologies like cell phones that allow a group like Ocean, like Plastic Bank to do that. They've already collected more than 3.1 billion plastic bottles. So even though it seems very like small little efforts, it's making a huge impact. 
Hmm. But what do you say to people uh, that put their trash out and they, you know, carefully put their plastics in one bin and the and then the, you know, the the paper in another bin? What do you say to people who think that that is worth nothing now? It's it is worth less than we thought, but it is not worth nothing. Okay. Um, And so I would say keep doing it, but be smart about it. And the other thing is, is it is an opportunity for new innovators, for new technology. Um, one of my uh, favorite thinkers is a guy named Buckminster Fuller. Um, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that waste is just a name for resources we haven't figured out what to do with, mm. um, you know, things to do with. And so, you know, all of that trash, all of that plastic is valuable and we just need people to innovate. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are doing really cool innovation, environmental innovations that while it may not be valuable now and it may not be living up to the promise today, um, it will in the future. So you're optimistic. I think so. I, I've i worked, as I said, I've worked in environmental policy for 20 years um, and the work that Talia, uh, who we'll talk with in a second, um, is doing and other innovators um, gives me more hope than I have had in a long time about finding good environmental solutions and environmental solutions that transcend politics. Um, so much of environmental policy is very partisan, very divisive. But innovation is something that people across the political spectrum are embracing because everybody cares about the environment. We can fight about how best to help the environment, but I think everybody can agree that innovation that does more with less, that reduce costs while helping the planet is a good thing. And so that also makes me very hopeful. I agree. I hate that it's become political. I think every single person wants to do the right thing and protect our environment for our kids and our grandkids. Um, it's really unfortunate that it's become this sort of partisan uh, disagreement. Like, you know, if you're a Republican, you don't care about the environment. That is not the case. Yeah, and that I am, you know, I have been uh, on the center right my uh, most of my political career, um, and yet I, you know, a lot of people in my book um, are on the left, and the conversations I had with them were just wonderful because mm-hmm. there were so many things that we could agree on, um, and that's what I really appreciate um, about what's going on. And that's why it was really fun to write this book, is because there are so many areas of agreement. Um, at a time when there's so much divisiveness in politics. Mm-hmm. Talia, tell me how you met Todd first. Hi, yes. So I met Todd actually in an interview for this book. Um, he reached out about a recent research project that I had been leading at Wild Labs, um, which is a nonprofit collaborative that I run the research program for. Okay. And yeah, he interviewed me for, for that book, interviewed me for that book, and um, we connected over that. And I ended up also being invited, actually, he invited me to write the forward for the book as well, which I was very honored to do. I love it. Well, tell me about your story. Yeah, so I started as a young biologist, wildlife ecologist, um, very excited to make a difference in the world. You know, I had grown up in California reading about conservation heroes like Jane Goodall. And um, once I got into the actual conservation space, I was kind of disillusioned with the reality of the work um, because of these issues that Todd has been mentioning. Like, we just really didn't have access to the tools that we needed to do the work effectively. Um, and so I mostly that came about in an internship I had in California studying puma ecology. And I found that 
most of my time was spent sorting through hundreds of thousands of images from remote cam uh, trail cameras, kind of looking for species of interest, doing very tedious work that I kept thinking, you know, don't we have artificial intelligence now? Don't we have tools that can help us with this? Um, or trekking around super steep terrains, trying to find um, individual pumas with this pretty old fashioned conservation technology method um, that's v VHF radio tracking. And these tools, you know, they have their place, but um, over and over again, I just, I kept thinking, you know, I have an iPhone in my back pocket. Why are we not using the technology that's kind of advancing so much of our society? Hmm. And so as I got kind of deeper into the field and deeper into that work, I started exploring opportunities and um, looking at, you know, how can we better work with technologists in the tech sector to leverage these modern innovations? And along the way, I discovered Wild Labs, which was this, it's this global online community of people who are really thinking similarly to me um, and wanting to create these cross-disciplinary, cross-sector um, collaborations to come up with better technologies for conservationists. Wow. I mean, and how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 26 now. So my journey into conservation started, that was around when I was 16 years old, trekking around the hills of my hometown um, and just kind of really yeah, coming to terms with the fact that it seemed like conservation was just falling behind somehow. And it was this field that I was so passionate about wanting to, you know, conserve nature and um, help society feel connected to our wildlife and our natural resources. And um, I was watching all of these kind of global discussions happening, happening around climate change and wanting a better future for our society and our planet. Um, and just feeling like there's no way we're going to get there unless we figure out how to catch up and, and leverage the tools that we have available to us. I love that. I feel like we should all kind of enter the conversation with an open mind like that, right? Um, I feel like one person can really make a difference uh, as you have, you know? I mean, did you ever think that you'd be part of a book someday? I, it definitely, um, yeah, I, I hadn't even considered it, honestly. When, when Todd reached out, I was so honored. Um, but it's been really cool just to be able to also to connect with someone from a different background and a different political space than I had grown up in. And um, to reach new audiences like being here today is really exciting. And I think Todd's message of getting to move beyond the political space sometimes and into talking about, you know, leveraging our collective power. And there are so many, so many wonderful projects and individuals and um, organizations in the environmental space and in the technology space who really want to make a difference and empowering those those small efforts to be part of something bigger is something that I think I hold a lot of hope in and I think Todd sees that as well. So that's been really exciting to um, get to connect with him over and also just to kind of spread the word a bit and hopefully have others see so much potential in this space as well. Mm -hmm. And what do you tell young people that are in school and don't really know what they want to be when they grow up? I mean, when did you know you wanted to do something like this with an impact? I think just to keep asking questions. And there's a great a quote in, in Todd's book that I can't remember who it was, Todd, you'll have to help me out. But it's something like, may we continue to refuse to accept um, the world today as the best that it can be. And I think that that's what I've done throughout my career is, you know, I remember 
being in that Puma Ecology Lab, being so frustrated that I couldn't, I felt like my impact was so limited and asking my higher ups, you know, could we explore working with people? We're right next to Silicon Valley. Could we explore, you know, making these solutions better? Have you thought about using more modern tracking technologies? How could we make these, you know, more effective? And getting just kind of a response that it was just so clear that they didn't have the capacity to do anything about it, or they didn't feel that they had that. Um, and they didn't have kind of the interdisciplinary relationships or mindsets that I think were needed to come up with more creative solutions. And I remember one of them said to me, you know, someday robots will do this for us, I'm sure. But for now, we have interns like you. <laughs> and there was nothing to light a fire under me like that. So I went on to, you know, go try to some of these things by myself. I did my senior research thesis on um, applying artificial intelligence to camera trap images and struggled a lot, but learned a lot, too. And, yeah, I think just continuing to... Uh, you know, hold that hope that there's something better out there and find the people who will get on your team to make that happen. That's a great way. The quote that you might be referring to, if not, it's, it's just one of my favorite quotes is, is also from Buckminster Fuller. It is, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. Mm. To change something, you create a new reality that people want to move to. And that's what I think that innovators like Talia, like Wild Labs, like others who are in my book are doing. And you contrast that with, I think, so much of the negative politics, both on the left and the right. I get very frustrated by people who destroy Van Gogh's uh, as a way to fight uh, what they think is, you know, fighting climate change or other issues. Uh, when in reality, the way to solve these problems is to create new opportunities, new technologies that are positive, that that do reduce uh, energy poverty, um, that do reduce our footprint on the planet. And so, so much of environmental policy is about fighting the existing reality uh, when there are so many people out there who are creating a new reality that is better that achieves the goals of helping the environment of environmental sustainability without being destructive. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It makes me like it brings me to tears when I see those people in and destroying art for their purpose of, you know, whatever that is. That doesn't help anything. It just makes me so sad. Yeah. And I and it's and it I think for, you know, people on the right, I talk to all the time. Uh, I will tell them, look, I, I know that you care about the environment, but you need to sound like you care about the environment. Mm. Um, and the frustration I think a lot of people that I speak with is, is that they want to do something for the environment, but that they want to do it in a way that is consistent with their values, innovation, you know, personal freedom, um, personal incentives. And then for my friends, I have lots of friends on the environmental left who are also frustrated, who feel like we are not making progress um, on environmental issues that they care about. And that I think is why these sort of innovative, positive approaches bring people together is because for those on the left, it is hope. It is they can point to things that are actually helping and solving problems like the plastic bank uh, example I gave you earlier. And for people on the right, 
It is personal incentives. It is personal responsibility empowered with technology. Um, and so that's why I'm, I really like these approaches because it cuts through the politics and because people on both sides of the aisle who truly care about the environment can find something uh, to agree on and do and uh, be positive for. And, I, you know, it's funny, I should say one more thing is, it's like, you know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving and there's always articles on the left and right about how to talk to your relatives about the environment or other issues. Uh, and it's always this sort of combat approach. Um, and I, you know, what I hope that that my book and, and why I was so glad that Talia wrote the, the foreword um, is that I hope that this book can be something that everybody can read and say, oh, here is a non-combat approach to helping mm. the environment with things that I'm sure, you know, there'll be things in there that everybody disagrees with, but I, I, well, my experience is there'll be a lot in, in there that people can agree on. Mm-hmm. Natalia, has someone from Apple reached out and said, you know, I want to help you with this? <laughs> Not Apple yet, but we are working with lots of the tech sector kind of big name players. Um, so Google and Microsoft have sponsored things. Also, um, there's, you know, there are lots of environmental, more environmentally focused technology groups that we work with as well. Um, lots of UK based uh, technology initiatives as well, like ARM. So there's a lot of willingness, you know, there are environmental programs in a lot of these um, technology companies. And I think there's some hesitation, you know, people bring up issues of greenwashing, or is this, you know, more, mostly CSR efforts, but more and more, we're seeing really, you know, dedicated programs and resources. Um, and fortunately, at Wild Labs, we've been able to kind of be a conduit for some of those. So we can, because we have this wonderful global community of efforts like the ones that Todd um, highlights in his book, we can work with those, you know, Silicon Valley startups or whoever it is that maybe they have, they're doing the 1% for the planet where they dedicate 1% of their profits annually to environmental solutions. And then they can partner with us to make sure that those resources are going to the most kind of impactful and needed initiatives. Mm. What an optimistic uh, conversation after, you know, a a very um, it's been a tough political season. You know what I mean? Like, I do feel like we are not coming together enough. And and this is something we can all come together. And I love the title of this time to think small because it brings up that, you know, the butterfly effect, right? Like a little tiny flap of a butterfly's wings can change a weather pattern. And even the smallest ideas that can help can turn into something, you know, more impactful. Um, How did you come up with the title, Todd? Uh, Is actually sort of inspired by a quote uh, from a guy named Tito Jankowski, who works on projects that pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and turn them into things because he said, okay, we're, we're, we're removing the CO2. Um, so what do we do with it? Like, how do we use it and, and turn it into something valuable? Um, and he um, talked about, you know, that, that small efforts can have a big um, impact. Um, and that just stuck in my mind, but I had already seen lots of examples. I think the plastic bank example is, is a really dramatic one because of the size. But there's a thing called proportionality bias, which is that we think big problems need big solutions. Mm. And so we naturally go to the types of solutions from the 1970s where we had the EPA, you know, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. I understand that because guess what? The Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act did help clean our air and water. Mm. But the types of problems we have today are different. And so 
these small approaches really make a big difference. Another one of my favorite examples in the book is a group in Africa that created an internet connected water pump because about half of water pumps break within a year and a half. And just by having the internet connection and charging about a penny a day, um, they give people an incentive to fix it when it's broken down. And so now this very simple technology hosted by Amazon Web Services uh, in Africa, um, now when a pump breaks down, people are losing money. So 98% of their pumps are working at any given time. And all it is is because now people can pay about a penny a day uh, and keep it running. So small technologies, as I started to look around, are making really big impacts in a lot of different places. And the, the group called eWater Services, they uh, have served more than a quarter of a million people uh, providing clean, reliable water. So it's, it's amazing. We have to talk about the climate change issue. Uh, people are even afraid to bring it up in topic. Do you think this is a five alarm or is it something that, you know, you're optimistic that we can come together and help in the future? I, you know, I tend, I am not a scientist, so I don't tend to fight people about whether it's big or small. Mm. But the reason people fight about that is because they think uh, that question gives them political leverage. Mm. People on the left say, oh, it's an existential crisis, and they hope that that will inspire people to action. And people on the right who are worried about, you know, government based solutions say, no, 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 it's not a problem at all. But um, in order to sort of downplay the problem so that you don't get those big government solutions, which people on the right don't like, I tend to focus on, okay, what works? And so this week, actually, um, people are in uh, Egypt, the, the UN climate conference. But what you're seeing from a lot of people, even on the left, is saying that these agreements aren't working. Mm. The Paris Climate Accords, very few countries are even meeting their own promises, um, uh, uh, don't even have plans to meet their promises, let alone implementation. So what I want to focus on is how can we solve, how can we deal with the risk from climate change, which I believe is, is real mm -hmm. and we should address it, uh, in a way that everybody can agree to. And so I'll just give you one example. In my electrical box, I have a little um, uh, orange box that connects to the wires and uses artificial intelligence. It samples my electricity a million times a second. It's called Sense, it's a sense monitor. And it connects to my phone and tells me where I'm using electricity, what appliances, because it can determine what appliances I'm using based on artificial intelligence. Now I'm an energy geek, right? I've worked on this for a long time. And I found that I was using electricity in ways that I didn't anticipate, that my lights were using more than I thought. And so I swapped out my light bulbs. I saved money. So you don't have to believe that climate change is an existential crisis to want to save money. Yeah. And so technologies that help people save money and reduce electricity are also helping save uh, the environment and reduce the risk from climate change. And those are where the solutions are. There's another group called Ohm Connect um, that is helping people shift demand so that it's not during periods of time that are carbon intensive energy, which is typically an early evening, to when energy is less carbon intensive um, and save energy. And they said that there are about 30 grand coulee dams worth of electricity that you could reduce simply using these techniques and artificial intelligence. Well, again, people are saving money. Mm. It's not just about, you don't have to believe that climate change is a crisis. You can just want to save money. Mm. 
And technology is allowing us to do that in ways that just 10 years ago weren't possible. I think the messaging has to be better, right? Absolutely. If uh, if the messaging is uh, you must do this um, to save the planet or you're a bad person, um, there are lots of people, and we see it already, that people will react to that and say, I'm, you know, I'm going to do what I want. Um, it, it is remarkable, but Gallup said that climate change is one of, I think it, at one point it was the most, but I think it is one of the most divisive issues in politics. Mm-hmm. And given how divisive our politics are, that is says something. So simply banging on each other about the nature of climate change and how big a risk it is and other things like that is not getting us where we want. Um, technologies that allow us to do more with less while helping the environment, I think, are a really great opportunity that is largely untapped. It doesn't mean we need zero policy. We can still disagree about that. But why not pick the low-hanging fruit and do things that we can agree on uh, that save money and the environment? Mm-hmm. Tali- I think another thing, sorry, if I could No, no, I was going to ask you, what do you think? Yeah, just that another thing that um, is related to the points that Todd's making is just that about the the access and that you know data and knowledge really is power when it comes to making your individual choices and community level choices about how you're engaging with the environment and um, I think we see that that's very true especially I focus more on biodiversity conservation than climate in my work um, but we see particularly with you know local and indigenous communities in areas that are really rich in biodiversity, but maybe poor in resources, that um, small technologies and affordable and accessible technologies can also make a really big difference in terms of their agency to monitor and manage their own natural resources. Um, So that's another just really powerful aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. You guys are wonderful ambassadors uh, for helping the environment. What can we teach our kids? What can I say to my boys, um, you know, to make them aware of of being good ambassadors for our planet? I'll start with Tom. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, the conversation of your individual impact in when we're talking about such big and complex and politically charged conversations um, can be tricky. But I think that stemming from kind of my upbringing that was, um, I grew up very close to nature and uh, had always kind of had that as an important element of my life that in whatever way you can, you know, our natural world is providing the resources that let us live and thrive as a society. And um, I think ultimately coming back to connection with it and understanding your impact, whatever decisions you then go on to make about it um, is really important. And so the tools like Todd was mentioning, just even understanding with super affordable, small tech, you know, how much energy am I using and what am I, what impact am I having? And then being able to make informed decisions about your choices is one of the things I would say is most important. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think about what we do with my boys. Uh, they're both in the, about Boy Scouts and just being in touch with, you know, the outdoors, like going camping, being by water, uh, you know, using uh, nature to provide shelter and food and all of that. We as parents have to do more of that because I find that our kids are stuck in their 
bedrooms looking at their phones or their iPads. And we as parents have to encourage them to get out there. You know, I I talked to some young Boy Scouts and I asked them what they wanted to do when they grew up. And a lot of them said something in nature. And it just made my heart so full. Yeah, it's definitely, it's so powerful for kids to just spend time outside and even understanding, you know, if you're in a more urban place or you don't have a lot of access to nature or the ocean or whatever it may be, understanding, you know, like where your food comes from mm. and how all of these kind of daily things that you engage in are related to the environment and connected. I think it's another important way to do that. Todd, what do you, what do you say? And for your kids, Janice, and for other parents out there, there is a wonderful resource called Sci Starter, SCI Starter, that is about citizen science. Mm. And part of it is dedicated to connecting um, kids and students to nature, to the outside world in a way that is productive, collecting information that is actually used by scientists. So it's not, you know, simply sort of a, a classroom exercise where you learn, but the data that you collect are useful and sometimes incredibly useful. So there is an app called eBird um, for people who are bird watchers and they put in what birds they see where to keep their life list because birders want to know what birds they've seen. That data goes to Cornell University and Cornell University used it to uh, work with the Nature Conservancy and rice farmers in the Central Valley of California because they knew exactly where migratory seabirds were going to be because they had data from bird watchers. And they went to the farmers and said, we'll pay you to flood your fields during the migratory period in January and February to improve the habitat while these birds are moving through. And it was a win-win. The farmers got paid, the birds got habitat, but they had it because people had provide citizen science data. So uh, for, for your kids and for others who want to you know, learn more and feel that what they're doing is helping, um, SciStarter is a great place to find all sorts of local citizen science projects um, that you know, make a difference and, and help you learn. And they're a lot of fun. And, and in terms of, you know, people who want to get involved in the environment, like I said, I've, I've worked in environment for more than two decades. When people ask me, where should I go? What should I do? I tell them, go either to work for a business, an environmental business or an NGO, because that's where the most innovative work is being done on the environment. Government certainly has a role. I worked in government. I sit on a government panel. But the most innovative work on these sorts of things is being done in the private and nonprofit sector. And there's some really amazing stuff that's going on. And I think it, it, it uh, like I said, it, it keeps me hopeful. And so that's what my advice to people is. Now, would you get into politics? I see here that you have a bachelor's degree in politics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I have worked in politics. Uh, I have run campaigns. I have worked on a lot of these things in the past. Um, but in writing this book and in, in my experience, I find that non-political work is more rewarding and so often more effective. And that is just fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think we need more of you uh, to be involved. And I also want to ask you about your beekeeping club. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I see. I'm a beekeeper. And so one of the metaphors I use in the book is about beekeeping, where there are about 50,000 bees in a hive. um, And each of them does a very small role. But you know, hive bees are amazing. They, you know, are adaptable everywhere from the Middle East to Alaska um, because each bee does their job 
um, and takes care of the hive. Um, and so it's a metaphor for thinking small, for how small efforts add up. But I love bees. They're, they're a constant source of interest. I will tell you one of my favorite stories about how smart bees are, which is there was a study um, where they were looking at a hive and they had a glass top on the hive and the bees had attached honeycomb to the top of the hive on glass. But glass is not very good um, structure to attach to. So during the winter, when bees are sort of hibernating and they're clustered, one of the um, uh, honeycombs collapsed. The bees broke out of their cluster, went and fixed it, reattached it. But then they went to the other honeycomb that they had attached to the roof and buttressed it. So the bees were able to figure out not only how to fix what had broken, but that there was a risk that that same thing would happen to the other honeycomb and they fixed that and buttressed those. Honeybees are incredible. We don't appreciate how intelligent animals are um, and how amazing nature is. And being a beekeeper, I just, you know, it's strange to have a hobby that where you get stung 10 times a year, <laughs> but um, I really enjoy it because it keeps me connected with the environment and I'm constantly in awe of them. Are we okay with our bees? I hear, you know, I see articles <laughs> saying that our bee, we're losing our bees. Uh, we are actually very good with bees, okay. uh, honeybees. Um, uh, honeybee population in the United States is uh, higher than it's been in about 20 years. Okay. Um, it went down for a while, primarily because of what's a little mite that attaches to the bees called the Varroa mite, um, which weakens them and kills them prematurely. Um, and so that's beekeepers like me. We constantly have to be dealing with Varroa mites. They have the greatest um, scientific name ever, Varroa destructor, uh, because that's what they do. They destroy hives. Um, but beekeepers have learned how to adapt to that. And what you see are commercial beekeepers. They're back to sort of normal levels of um, hive mortality. Um, hobbyists like me, we have a little more trouble. But uh, the commercial beekeepers doing well. The, if you're concerned, if you want to be concerned about bees, you should be concerned about wild bees mm. and wild insects. Um, that's where I think we're having uh, bigger problems for a whole variety of reasons, primarily lack of habitat and other things like that. But but honeybees, actually, I'm not not too worried about. Okay. And Talia, what are your big plans in the next you know few years? What do you want to do next? Big plans. I have lots of big plans. <laughs> I like uh, it. Right now, we are focused mostly on just growing out the Wild Bob's um, community and platform. So right now I'm leading our research program. Um, we were launched in 2015, so we're not too old, but we're kind of getting to the point of development where we're, we're able to kind of look more systemically at the the global community that's coming together around conservation tech and being able to monitor kind of progress happening across the sector and broker some really exciting relationships and partnerships. Um, and we're just starting to see, I think it started out a lot like, so with Todd's hive metaphor, um, the way that I think about us fitting into that is that we're kind of creating the hive and um, the kind of providing the resources and the communication and collaborative infrastructure to let all of these bees do their good work um, to, yeah, advance progress in the field. And I think over the next few years, we're hoping that we can scale up a lot of the, the small efforts that we've been starting and seeding and seeing happening in the community. Um, and yeah, just harness a lot more of the optimism and opportunities that we're seeing 
to hopefully have some bigger scale kind of recognition of the importance of this work and start informing more yeah, policy. And um, I recently spoke at a UN event that was really exciting um, and getting kind of these higher level global conversations to be thinking about conservation technology and the importance of investing in it. And like those big tech sector partnerships we talked about, um, getting those from being, you know, small little kind of seed funding activities and a few event programs here and there to really meaningful um, programmatic work and infrastructure that can hopefully let the wonderful projects in our community do a lot more. You know, this the other story that uh, that I see here that I love sea turtle eggs. I just love to see the, you know, the video of that happening and, and how fragile these these little guys are. So tell me about the story in your book about the sea turtle eggs. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think anybody who sees a, a picture or a video of sea turtles that are coming out of their mm. nest, these little tiny things, everybody stops because they're super cute. But sea turtles, uh, many sea turtles are threatened or endangered. Um, and actually, this is a story that that I think probably got me thinking about the power of small technologies, the adaptability. This might have been the first example. So there's a group called Paso Pacifico uh, that is based in Los Angeles, but works in Central America to protect sea turtles and stop the poaching of turtle eggs. So in many Central American countries, people will poach turtle eggs and sell them because it's a it's it's one of their primary forms of income. Um, and Paso Pacifico worked with people on uh, the poachers themselves, they got to know them and said, look, you know, here's what's happening. And they said, yes, I understand, but this is how I make money. I, you know, otherwise I'm impoverished. So they were trying to figure out how to disentangle the poaching networks, right? Not the poachers themselves, but who was paying the poachers because those are the people that they really wanted to go after. So they were watching, uh, uh, an episode of breaking bad <laughs> where they put a tracker, uh, and they said, you know, maybe we can put a tracker on turtle eggs and figure out what's going on. So they created a fake turtle egg using a 3D printer and put a cell phone tracker inside. Um, and so what they do is they put the egg, it feels like an egg, it looks like a turtle egg, and they put it in a clutch that has just been laid. And then the poachers come in and they grab quickly all of the eggs so they don't realize the fake egg is in there. And then they can track them using cell phones to see where they go. So they actually have tested this um, and they tested it in Costa Rica and they were able to track an egg all the way to the back alley of a grocery store in the capital San Juan and say, okay, now we sort of get a sense of you know, what the network is and how this is being sold and where they're being sold. Um, and that's really powerful in disentangling this um, and this kind of all started because somebody was telling me about this and saying that, you know, the, uh, Nicaragua actually puts soldiers on the beaches with AK-47s to stop the poachers. But the soldiers are just bribed, right? I mean, the poachers just bribed the soldiers to look the other way. And that wasn't working, but technology like this can. And so I sort of made a joke. I said, so you're telling me that cell phones are more powerful than AK-47s <laughs> when it comes to protecting sea turtles. And they laughed. And then I thought about it. I was like, that actually is kind of true, mm. um, that you can rely on government protection. You can rely, you know, in a country like Nicaragua, hope that the soldiers are protecting them. But that's just not the case. And in fact, um, it's not just the soldiers themselves, but the, the government, I mean, those, those bribes go up the chain. And so in some cases, there is an in, the government has an interest in not stopping the poaching. Mm. 
in that environment, the only way, the only thing that you can really turn to is technology like this to multiply the efforts of a small group like Paso Pacifico. Um, so I just, it was one of the first innovations that really caught my attention and I, it's still one of my favorites. I love it. Thank you so much for telling us about it. I love this conversation. I really do. And we all can agree that we want to keep our environment as healthy as possible. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure we can all get on board with that. And Todd, tell me where people can buy your wonderful book, Time to Think Small. So of course you can get it on Amazon. Um, but it is, uh, it's distributed, um, my publisher is Imagine Publishing, distributed by Penguin Random House, so uh, you can find it in bookstores as well, but obviously the, it's on Kindle and uh, hardback at Amazon. Wonderful. Todd and Talia, it's been a pleasure, uh, and, uh, and I hope to continue the conversation. It was very nice to chat with you as well. Oh, thank Thanks you so both. much for having us. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.